And I wanted to be in on the ground floor of starting a program that would give our enlisted members an opportunity, just an opportunity, to be able to make a dream like this come true. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Command Sergeant Major Dr. Althea Green to WarDocs. Sergeant Major Green's military background includes duties within operational as well as fixed facility healthcare organizations with leadership responsibilities at every level from tactical to strategic. She culminated her Army career as the 16th Command Sergeant Major of the MedCom and Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Army Surgeon General and Commander of the Army Medical Command. She currently serves as Director of Recruitment at the Uniformed Services University School of Medicine. You can read her full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, Dr. Green describes her journey through the ranks of Army Medicine and the lessons learned along the way to becoming the senior medic in the Army. She also talks about her leadership in the Enlisted to Medical Degree Program, where enlisted soldiers of all military occupations can enter a pathway that enables them to enter medical school and become physicians in any specialty. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Command Sergeant Major Althea Green to War Docs. Althea, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So Sergeant Major Green, tell us a little bit about what led you to join the Army and why did you choose becoming a medic? I was born and raised in the Caribbean in a small island. I'm actually the first person in my family to join the Army. I was a young 17-year-old high school grad. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. I graduated from an all-girls uh, high school, and most of my friends were getting ready to either get married, start families. A few were getting ready to go to college. I knew that I didn't want to start a family. My mom had had me as a teenager. She was unmarried. She did not finish high school. I knew that I didn't want to take that path. I knew I wanted to do something different. I knew I wanted to travel. So I knew, number one, I was getting off the island for sure. So I thought the Army sounded like a good idea. At that time in the late 70s, the Army was actively recruiting women because they were trying to integrate women into the Army. Unfortunately, my parents didn't think that the military was a good career choice for a young Catholic girl. So when the recruiter visited our house, they declined to sign the paperwork. So I waited till I was 18 and I signed myself up. When I went to the MEP station, there were a couple of options. I picked medic because I had taken some first aid courses in high school. So I was a little bit familiar with that stuff. So it sounded good to me. So I selected medic and off I went. You started off your career with your first assignment being with the 36th Med Battalion at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. And then you moved cross country to San Francisco to Letterman Army Medical Center. Tell us a little bit about those experiences in those assignments and what you learned and how that shaped your future career decisions. Those first two assignments were so different, but I have to say, I'm actually glad that I went to Fort Devens first because that's where I really learned how to be a soldier. 
So my first assignment at Fort Devens was to a medical battalion. It was an MTO unit. First of all, it was the first time in my life that I'd seen snow, but that's a different story. But at Fort Devens, I learned the business of field craft. We spent a lot of time in the field. I was assigned to a ground ambulance company initially, and then to a clearing company. It wasn't the same medical battalion. So when we weren't in the field, we were in garrison, we were maintaining our equipment, we were in the motor pool, taking care of our vehicles. And we did a lot of that. There was this never ending cycle of maintenance and and training. The 36th Medical Battalion was what was called a reforger unit. And the reforger is an acronym for return of forces to Germany. So we were always preparing to do that, to return to Germany, to support the next big war. So there were a lot of training exercises. And while I was at Fort Devens, my unit actually um, returned to Germany a couple of times to participate in the big reforger exercises. I was also very lucky in that I had some amazing mentors at that first duty station. My first platoon sergeant, who was an old Vietnam veteran, Sergeant First Class Fox, who was an amazing mentor. He sent me to my first Soldier of the Month board. And after a couple of years there of working in the dirt, he selected me to to go over to the battalion headquarters and work in their ops shop as a young E5. And then additionally, at that first duty station, there were three young lieutenants, second lieutenants who arrived at the same time I did, Komar, Feathers, and Pickett. They encouraged me to start working on my college education because I was straight out of high school, teenager. I really didn't have a clue of what I was doing and and where I should go next. And they encouraged me to start doing that. So I really had a great start at that first duty station. And then I re-enlisted and I went across the country to California. That was totally different. I went en route to Fort Sam first, and I was retrained as an ENT specialist, ear, nose, throat, and audiology technician. So at Letterman in San Francisco, there was no going to the field. There was no motor pool. It was all uh, working in the clinic. I was cross-trained as a surgical technician. It was amazing. It was totally different than Fort Devens, but I loved it also. I, and I learned a lot of, of new things. I learned a lot of different things. And I had different kinds of mentors people who encouraged me. And that's the place where I started thinking, maybe I want to become a doctor because the physicians in the clinic, they were such amazing teachers. We would go into the surgical suite. They would be showing me what they were doing. And and I just was falling in love with that. So I actually started working on my pre-med stuff in San Francisco, but then I PCSed and things changed. Did you feel like you're prepared to do the clinical things that they were asking you to do when you started working in the hospital versus the operational unit in Massachusetts? In Massachusetts, I didn't learn much about patient care, to be honest with you. I learned a lot of field craft. I I could do that PMCS on my ambulance. I knew how to maintain the sets, kits, and outfits in the warehouse. But patient care, not so much. But going back to Fort Sam, for that additional training was incredibly uh, helpful to me because when I got to San Francisco, I, I knew how to do ENT stuff. I felt very competent. I felt very trained because in addition to the, the classroom work at Fort Sam, I did OJT at BAMSI. That's Brook Army Medical Center for, for those who might not be aware. 
Right. I was at Brooklyn Medical Center for months. I did it all. And then when I got to San Francisco, I was cross-trained as a surgical tech. So that was more training. They didn't just throw me in the OR and said, hey, do this. They trained me to, to do that stuff. So I felt very comfortable. So even after serving in the military for 35 years, you've remained connected to military medicine. How would you say things are different now than they were, let's say, in the early 80s, the late 70s when you joined? Well, I would say that the, the training is definitely different. I was trained as a 91 Bravo in 1977. I learned very rudimentary stuff. What our 68 whiskeys are being trained on today, it is so much more than what a, a basic 91 Bravo. I was called a combat medic, but I was certainly not prepared to, to practice as a combat medic in 1977, 1978. I was prepared to administer first aid perhaps, but not much more. I think today's medic is definitely much more well-trained, much more competent. They're expected every year undergo a refresher training. They're tested, they're EMT certified. I'm so pleased with how we've advanced their training over the years. You mentioned when you came in, the Army was actively recruiting females. How did it feel to be a female at that time when there weren't that many around? It was a different world. The, the Army was actively recruiting women at that time, but I don't think the Army was really prepared to accept women as full partners in soldiering. In my time as a young soldier, I experienced not so great treatment from senior leaders, senior non-commissioned officers and officers who were supposed to be my leaders. And unfortunately, at that time, the Army wasn't providing us good training regarding how to deal with that. It wasn't even discussed. I'm thankful that nowadays the Army has evolved and we are teaching our young soldiers how to be more effective in advocating for themselves. And our leaders are better at it also. I have to say, coming up through the ranks, it has always been one of the areas where I believe I've had a heightened awareness because of what I went through as a young soldier. So coming up through the ranks, it was absolutely something that I would not tolerate if a soldier ever came to me and complained that they were being uh, sexually harassed or they were a victim of uh, sexual assault, it was going to be dealt with. You actually got your wish of traveling after San Francisco. You went to Europe for three successful assignments in yes. different units that I was looking at the email that you sent me that those units aren't even in existence today. What was the European theater like at that time? And you had mentioned Reforger. What were you preparing for in army medicine or military medicine? Well, Army medicine and heck, the Army was preparing for uh, the next big thing. We were in the midst of the Cold War back then, and uh, everything we did was in preparation to go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. I don't know if I should call it toe-to-toe, -to -toe, but we were preparing to defend against the Soviet threat. So in Europe, we had units arrayed along the East Germany and West Germany border, the Fulda Gap. And I remember when we visited that area, you, you would see the, the U.S. soldiers 
on patrol or standing along the border and they would be facing east, watching them. And they would be facing west, watching us. And it was like this giant standoff. We were always preparing for the day when they would cross over. And they were preparing for the day when we would cross over and there would be this mega fight, two giant powers just waiting and hoping and praying that neither one takes that step. And thank God it never happened. It almost seems like we've come full circle now with you know what's happening in 2022, where we see the people looking to the east and saying, how far are they going to come? And yeah. Preparing for it once again. In 1992, the 30th Medical Brigade was reactivated in Heidelberg, Germany, and deployed to Bosnia. And you were part of that. What was your role there, and what lessons did you learn for future assignments? I was 30th Medical Brigade's first ops sergeant major. I am very proud of that. I left Wiesbaden when the 60th Medical Group was inactivated after the, the first Gulf War. And we had the big drawdown in Europe, and we went from 13 hospitals down to, good gosh, three, I believe. Now we're down to one. But anyway, I left Wiesbaden and and went down to Heidelberg. The 7th Medical Command, which was the headquarters for all of those hospitals, was on its way out. And the 30th Medical Brigade was being stood up. I was one of the first handful of soldiers assigned to the 30th Medical Brigade. And I became the operations uh, sergeant major for brigade and and we deployed to Bosnia. Standing up uh, a new brigade is exciting. You know, you you get to to watch it grow. Of course, there were a number of training exercises to get it up to full operating capability. It seems like we were always in the field on some command post exercise or on some, we used to call it RTEPs back then, um, being evaluated. But at the end of the day, all of that stuff got us to where we needed to be. So when you were in Bosnia, when you deployed with that unit, how did you find out that you were prepared to do what you needed to do? Were there any incidents where you had to provide medical care in austere locations? Or what, what memories from that deployment strike you? Well, I was with the brigade headquarters. So the, the brigade headquarters in and of itself wasn't providing care. The 212th cash was our largest subordinate unit that was providing care. They were located a few miles away from us, and they were the heavy hitter, I would say. They are one of our most storied hospitals. They were always incredibly busy. When we got to Bosnia, I think the Pakistanis had been occupying the area where we moved into, so there was a lot of cleanup to be done. I'm talking about physical cleanup. I'm just to make the place livable. And uh, the 212 was able to simultaneously clean up the area and take care of patients at the same time. I mean, it was just incredible. Now, were they just taking care of coalition partners or were they taking care of any casualties and other patients that were locals or even hostels? They were taking care of primarily coalition partners, not so much locals. Did anything stick out from that deployment? I remember the 212 was in what we call the uh, Gotham City because they were located in a what used to be a coal factory. Initially, we were very limited as to how we could travel. So they were managing to, to take care of their mission under some really austere conditions because one of our challenges was trying to figure out when we heard 
gunfire or explosions. Okay, was it a wedding or was it an offensive? So there was always this heightened sense of awareness to figure out what was going on. And, and we, we weren't located close enough to each other that we could determine exactly when they needed help. You just had to be um, on guard all the time, being on that very first cycle in an area like that. We had the chance to talk to retired Lieutenant General Schoomaker uh, on Wardox before, and you were his battle buddy for four successive assignments. And it was interesting. And what he told us was as a one-star, you really don't have a whole lot of input into who your command sergeant major is. But as you pin on extra stars, you have a little bit more control over that. And he said that as he went to the two-star and three-star level, that for sure that you were going to come with him because you were his battle buddy. Tell us a little bit about how you interacted with General Schoomaker <laughs> and, and your role as Sergeant Major in the AMED. General Schoomaker, my battle buddy, he is absolutely the most brilliant person with whom I've ever served, hands down. I had not known him prior to meeting him at Fort Gordon, Eisenhower Army Medical Center. Then Brigadier General Darrell Poor had actually selected me for that position. And about six months later or so, General Poor was promoted to Major General and he departed to take command of the Emmett Center and School. So General Schoolmaker was a brand new general officer when he arrived at Eisenhower from, from Germany. He actually arrived from the 30th Medical Brigade. <laughs> Go figure. And he would always say, oh, I came from the most powerful medical brigade in the Army. <laughs> so. Instant friendship right there. So after he arrived, we talked and he gave me my marching orders. And we just sort of clicked. Our relationship has always been one of mutual respect and trust. And I have to say, he's always respected my counsel. He knows that he can depend on me to give him the ground truth on any issue when he's asked for my opinion. And I've never been able to provide my opinion when he's asked for it. So I mentioned that he's the most brilliant person that I know, but I think the thing that impressed me most about him is his ability to connect with people. I mean, this man can carry on a conversation, an intelligent conversation with uh, world-renowned scientists, and then he can turn on a dime and he can carry on an intelligent conversation with a five-year-old kid who was just in a corner screaming. I mean, that's the kind of person he is. And... Although I no longer work for him, he is still someone whom I refer to as my mentor because I'm still able to reach out to him to talk about just about anything. One of the things that we've talked with previous Surgeons General is the time in 2007 when there was a scandal at Walter Reed that was on the front page of the Washington Post. And, and that's something that you were drawn into, You're probably not of your choice, but really presented some leadership challenges. What would you say was the biggest leadership challenge and what did you learn? What was important to know for people who might face similar things in the future? I would say that Walter Reed has probably been the biggest leadership challenge that I've faced in, in my 35-year career. I had not previously been assigned to Walter Reed when I received that unexpected movement order on, on March the 2nd, uh, 2007. General Schoolmaker had been selected to be the commanding general. And of course, he wanted to go there with a battle buddy, someone 
he knew and, and could trust. So Walter Reed and, and the North Atlantic region became our third consecutive assignment together. And initially, that was a, a pretty difficult time, not just for the leadership at Walter Reed, but for the entire AMED, our AMED, because, I mean, our AMED was taking a beating for issues that were in large part beyond our control for the most part. Yeah, there were some basic failures on the ground because leaders there were not as informed about certain things as they should have been. But ultimately, it was a huge failure of, of the system. It was a system that was designed to handle, it was designed for the Cold War. And here we were in the 21st century, and we were fighting a different kind of war. And the patient load and acuity was totally different. And the system had not been redesigned to handle that. So I, I went in and, and tried to do what NCOs do to take care of people, take a look around try to do assessments, talk to people, um, listen a lot, try to solve problems. So I think there was certainly a lot of hurt and pain during that period. But I think the good that came from it was that the problems at Walter Reed highlighted the larger problems in the system because the system was broken and the system was antiquated and the system needed to be redesigned to deal with the, the the problems of the 21st century, and that happened. So we, we ended up building a whole new system of warrior transition units that was very well resourced. One of the great outcomes was that when the Army turned around and said, hey, tell us what you need, we'll give it to you. We told them what we needed, and guess what? We got it. That was good. Yeah, yeah. You were the first woman and first person of color to be competitively selected as the Army's Medical Command Soldier of the Year. You also culminated your Army career as the 16th Command Sergeant Major of the MedCom and Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Army Surgeon General. Those are significant accomplishments. How did you do it? Well, I was lucky. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I had amazing mentors very early in my career. They set me on a good path. They encouraged me to not settle for uh, you know, mediocrity. That was good. I also, I think, always understood the value of, of hard work. And I got that from my grandma my grandmother, who was very strict growing up. My mother always said, oh, she likes you better than she likes me. Well, I'm not going to argue with that, but, but grandma always stressed the value of, of hard work. But the Army also provided me with so many opportunities coming up through the ranks. For example, I've never turned down an assignment that the Army gave me. I've gone where they sent me. And it's always turned out to be amazing wherever I've landed. And I can't say there's always been easy, but I have to say there's value in hard work and it does pay off. So if you were advising an 18-year-old Althea right now who's considering joining the army, joining the military, becoming a medic, what would you say to younger Althea about the opportunities and the expectations of what a medic does? I would say be prepared to work hard. Be prepared to be a learner. You never stop learning. Don't be content with just doing the minimum. Take advantage of the opportunities that are going to come your way. You currently oversee the Enlisted to Medical Degree Preparatory Program, the EMDP2. Tell us a little bit about that program and how you became involved. Ah, yes. My retirement baby. 
When I retired from the Army, I decided I was going to take a, a year off because after 35 years of, of working straight, I felt I needed sort of a break. But then I got this call that this program needed someone to help get it off the ground. And would I be interested? And I said, heck yeah. And the main reason was because in my many years of service, I've met so many talented young people who have aspired to become physicians. And there are so many of them who say, what? I want to do this, but it's just in the too hard to do block. I'm going to set that dream aside because I've got a family to take care of. And yeah, I just can't worry about that right now because I've got other priorities. And I remembered my old self when I was at Letterman and I had a dream sort of like that. And I set it to the side because I fell in love and I got married and I started a family and I went to Germany and priorities changed. And I wanted to be in on the ground floor of starting a program that would give our enlisted members an opportunity, just an opportunity to be able to make a dream like this come true. What are the prerequisites for an enlisted member to get enrolled or be part of the program? So the prerequisites are relatively simple. First off, they have to show that they're interested in in furthering their education. So they they have to have gone out there and, and earned a bachelor's degree in anything. They don't have to have taken any science courses, just get a bachelor's degree and have done well enough to have earned a cumulative GPA of 3.2, recommendation of their chain of command. And then there are some other more specific requirements. You have to be qualified for commission because at the end of the program, the successful service members are commissioned as they matriculate to medical school. Now, those are the two big things. Bachelor's degree, 3.2 GPA. But then the third thing is be qualified for a commission and you have to apply. And so for those who are accepted into the program, they, they go into uh, a didactic program with, that prepares them to really compete and apply and get accepted to medical school. Is that how it works? Yes. So for those who are accepted, they actually are PCS to Bethesda, Maryland. And for a two-year period, they are full-time students. The program includes science coursework, preparation for the medical college admissions tests, clinical exposure, mentoring. We place each one of these students in a mentorship triad with a physician mentor and a medical student mentor and uh, pre-health advising so we can help them put their medical school application packet together. So at the end of the first year in the program, they're ready to submit that medical school application packet. Now, can they apply to any medical school? Actually, they're required to apply to USU, but they can apply in addition to USU. They can apply to any accredited civilian medical school in the country. So what's the track record of this program? How, how do people do? Over 90% of our students have been accepted to medical school. We're about to matriculate our ninth cohort of enlisted students. So looking back, what has been the biggest challenge for the program for you? For me, I think one of the biggest things that I have to deal with, and, and this is me having to help these students is imposter syndrome. Over half of these service members come from families where they are the first ones in their families to even earn a college degree. So for many of them, it's the mindset, can I do this? No one in my family has earned a college degree. There are no doctors in my family. That's self-doubt. 
So keeping them motivated, keeping them encouraged. Yes, the first year of our program is incredibly difficult because in one year, our students get through 42 semester hours of natural science courses. It is a lot because the average full-time college student, they do about 24 to 30 semester hours. But we warn them when, they, when we do our information briefs before they apply. We tell them, yeah, the first year is going to be tough. But we're going to help you get through it. You just need to come here and prepare to work hard. So, you know, keeping that self-doubt away from them is something that, that, that we continue to help them with. The first group that started in this program most likely is in their residency, probably around their second or third year. What kind of feedback do you get from those individuals who now have graduated from medical school and are ready to finish their residency? How do they feel about that program? The feedback we've gotten so far is that these service members, because it's all services, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, of course, the Marines have to select another service when they matriculate to medical school. They can't matriculate as to medical school as Marines, but to a person, they are so appreciative that they have gotten this far. One young lady said, this is a dream that she never thought she would see come to fruition. They are just so thankful that their military services and their leaders and the Uniformed Services University have all decided to invest in them in this manner. And they're ready to give back because guess what? They are serving as physician mentors. They're serving the ones who are still in medical school. They're serving as medical student mentors for the the young service members who are now coming into the program. Now, to get in the program, do you have to come from a medical MOS or can it be anything in the enlisted ranks? You can be any MOS. Just under half of our students are from non-medical MOS. Because I would think it would be a very nice thing to have or an experience to have that once you're a military physician, that what it's like to be an enlisted member, to be a, you know, a medic and know what that medic is looking for. So based on your experience being in the military for 35 years, what is the medic looking for from that medical professional, that doctor or nurse or PA? What do they want to see? I think they want someone who understands their lifestyle, who understands their journey, who understands what it's like for them. And I think when we have physicians who have walked in the shoes of their patients, the the patients appreciate that. I mean, I'm not saying that every physician needs to be that, but I think when we have some who have been there, it's a good thing for our health system. So for those physicians who don't have that experience, what would you tell them that the medics, especially who are working in that clinic or in that unit, what are they looking for from that medical professional? They're looking for people who will be, number one, professional. I heard someone say that, well, I just happen to wear a uniform. I'm just a doc. I think that's nonsense. They, they want someone who will be a professional. They want someone who's willing to, to train them. These young medics out there, they, they want to be uh, competent and proficient, and they depend on the officers to help train them. They don't learn everything they need to learn in AIT. You also serve as the director of recruitment at the nation's medical school, USUS. 
Uniform Services University of Health Sciences. What type of individuals is USU looking to recruit? USU is looking for people who represent America. USU doesn't need just one type of applicant or just one type of student. There is no, no perfect candidate, right? We, we need all different types of medical students. We need them to come from all different walks of life. So candidates who are well-rounded, candidates with different life experiences, candidates who come from different parts of the country, those are all welcome at, at USU. So most of the physicians in the military train in civilian institutions and not at USU. Right. What, what do you think is found at USU that's not seen normally at a civilian training institution? Ha. Ah, so we are, number one, we're the only military medical school in the country. There are not many medical schools in the country that include a leadership aspect to their curriculum. There are many medical schools which will provide a world-class medical education. USU provides a world-class medical education, but it also provides a world-class leadership education. Many military physicians are going to find themselves, maybe at their first duty station, in a leadership role. And the 75% of physicians who are trained in civilian medical schools, most of them, except for the time they spend in BOLIC, Basic Officer Leadership Course, they get zero leadership training. But yet, when they show up to their post-camps and stations, they're often expected to take a leadership role. The USU grad is getting leadership training throughout their four years of, the, of their undergraduate medical education program. So that's one of the things that makes us unique. Our curriculum includes about 700 additional hours of just leadership training. You won't get that anywhere else. You mentioned earlier that at the beginning of your career, you thought about potentially going down the route of becoming a doctor, but you decided other things came up, priorities, married, you had a family. And one of the things we'd like to ask guests on the show is if your family of the future, 50, 100 years from now, listens to this podcast, what would you want them to hear about your career in military medicine? I would want them to hear that I made a positive difference. I made an impact. I had an impact on the lives of other people, a positive impact. I don't want to have had a negative impact. I may have had a negative impact on the lives of one or two people. But overall, though, in all seriousness, I want them to know that I've had a positive impact on the lives of people. I love it when I get an email or a phone call from someone who says, hey, Sergeant Major, you remember me? I was a private at your such and such unit, and now I'm a Sergeant Major. Those things just make me smile. And nowadays, it's even better when I hear from one of these young people who've gone through the EMBP2, and they're Dr. So-and-so. I was sitting working in a slide deck a couple of days ago. My cell phone chirps, and I open it up, and it's a text message with a photo. And the photo Two of my EMVB2 grads who are now in graduate medical education, well, they both happen to be in San Antonio. They're both in civilian programs. One is a graduate from the first cohort of EMVP2. He is in a psychiatry residency at the San Antonio VA. And the other one is a graduate of the second cohort. He is in a neurosurgery residency, University of Texas, San Antonio. And the neurosurgery residency says to me, 
hey, Sarah Major, guess who I just consulted with? You know, they both send me a picture like this. And it's just the coolest thing. So that's the kind of stuff that, that I want people to remember, that I made the difference, that kind of difference in the lives of people. We've been speaking with retired Army Command Sergeant Major Althea Green. Althea, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on War Docs, And thank you for your service to this nation. Great talking with you, Doc. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.